It's good to be here. I've gotten to know the men a bit uh, the last few days at the Wilderness Inn. And I spent time this morning uh, dropping by Father Rice's funeral, I mean uh, burial site. David Rice was a preacher that God mightily used in revival in this area and planted the first Presbyterian churches west of the Alleghenies, trained by Samuel Davies, who had all-black church and was one of the first presidents of what we call Princeton and was used mightily in revival, influenced by Jonathan Edwards, a hero of mine. And so it's also a happy occasion for me to be in this, this land, this place, that was dear to our heritage and um, has become so liberal and so opposed to the outpourings of the Holy Spirit and the like. I didn't plan on saying all that, but I just thought I'd get going. <laughs> Eden Grace made me cry. I have 18 grandchildren. Uh, one in heaven and 17 on earth, two more this year or last year. I think that's it. Um, greetings from my wife, Karen, my family, my church, Christ Church, PCA, Bloomington, Illinois. Thank you so much for having me here. I knew Seth, your brother, prior to knowing you and lots of campus outreach people, one of whom is Olin Stubbs, whom you discipled and often calls me to, to carry the baton from you in his life. Um, there's nothing quite so crippling as fear. And it is one of Satan's like love handles on us, especially the fear of death, which Hebrews 2.15 says, subjects people to lifelong slavery. Isn't that awful? And so this passage addresses fear, and I'm going to do it in the shadow, in thinking, remembering about Christmas. I know it's after Christmas, but in the shadow of the incarnation and the significance of that. I'm just going to read the verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Father, we pray now that you would pour down the Holy Spirit upon us, that you would once again have mercy and revive your church according to your word as we read and that your Holy Spirit would work by and with the word that he wrote through inspiration and breathing out truth through the writers ordained for this purpose. And we remember the poetry and the prophecy and promise of Isaiah in a different age when the people were afraid and all the peoples were afraid. The unbelievers were turning to idols and your people were called to be different and to trust you. 
And so give us grace today to overcome our fears. And we pray for, again, for Eden Grace, that you would pour out the Holy Spirit upon her, that you would pour out wa uh, water on that thirsty heart, and that she will rise up like a willow by flowing streams, as Isaiah talked about in the next chapters, and that she would say, I belong to the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you remember uh, an old book, an allegory. I like Pilgrim's Progress. But this one was called Hannah's Hind's Feet in High Places. Um, it's kind of was put out as kind of a ladies' book, but I found it helpful way back when. And if I recall it right, Much Afraid. Much Afraid is the protagonist, the main person in the allegory, and she belongs to fearing family. And she's a follower of the shepherd, and the shepherd's going to lead her up to the high places, referring to Malachi's uh, reference there. Or it's Habakkuk, I think. Uh, Hind's feet in high places. And so up there, from the valley of humiliation up to the high places where perfect love will cast out fear, she is given uh, there Hind's feet. And she lives in the meanwhile in the village of much trembling. She has two handicaps. One, she's a cripple because her feet are crooked. And the other is she's ugly because she has a crooked mouth and it disfigures her facial expressions. And so uh, she's filled with shame and contempt and she's often bullied. She's orphaned and raised by Aunt Dismal Forebodings and lives with three cousins. Sounds dreadful, really. Gloom, <laughs> uh, gloom, spiteful, and craven fear. Well, one day she finds out she has to marry craven fear. And she's already called much afraid, and she's found out she's going to be forced to marry craven fear on this dreadful day. And so she comes to the shepherd and says, what shall I do? And the shepherd says, do not fear. I've waited a long time for you to ask that question. And you must go to the high places and your two guides will be sorrow and suffering. If you and I are ever to reach the high places on Heinz feet, where perfect love casts out all fear, where we become fearless and enjoy fearlessness, then we must begin by writing out our fears and name them one by one, and then come on our knees with our Bibles open, the book open, and our nose in the book, and our eyes cast upon Isaiah 41.10. Two commands, fear not. Second command is, do not anxiously look around you. Do not be dismayed. Two commands, and I'd like to ask three things from the text. 
or look at three categories. First is the crippling effects of fear upon us. Second, the reasonableness of fearlessness for the believer, that it's reasonable. And thirdly, the significance of Christ's birth in relation to this. So first, what are the crippling effects of fear on us? The effects are so crippling <clears throat> on us that under the rules of warfare, they also affect everyone around us. So if you look back in Deuteronomy 20, before they go out to war, there's all these things. If you're just married, stay home for one year. Enjoy your wife. It's important that first year to have a strong foundation. But it also says, is anyone fearful? Any of you people, any of you men out there afraid? Stay home. Because your heart will cause the other hearts to melt if you go into warfare with us. Fear affects people. There's a cost, there's an effect upon not only you, but the people around you. And fear always sends us fleeing and cringing before that which we're afraid of. We run when the danger seems greater than our present resources. <clears throat> the more fear is your driving force, the emptier you're going to feel inside about your own resources, the more your suspicion will go up, and fear begets emptiness, which begets suspicion, and begets betrayal. And so three crippling effects of fear, thinking about what these people would think about in the Old Testament, is first of all, the false perception of ourselves. Suddenly, we see ourselves as weaker and smaller than we actually are. I don't know about you, but if sometimes I make such a big deal of something that I start to shrink, or someone. And in their context, they would remember the story of the Exodus that they said the ten spies who rejected going into the land, not Joshua and Caleb, but the ten others came back and said, we're just grasshoppers in their sight. And so one effect of fear is that it begins, you begin to get a distorted view of yourself as a grasshopper. A second effect of sin is the distort, distortion of the perceived danger. The danger becomes way too big and the people said, there's giants in the land. We can't go in. We can't go in the promised land the Lord is giving us because there's giants. And the danger is disproportionately way out of reality. 
than what it really is. And of course, our bodies equipped with an amazing cocktail of biochemicals as cortisol rises higher and higher in the context of fear and danger, distortion of ourselves being small and something else being way too big, your body's excretion of opiates to prepare for danger and not feel pain, all that obviously is true as well. Anyway, the false perception of ourselves combined with the distortion of what you fear into something much word worse leads to a third crippling effect. And that is we tend to blame ourselves for it and others for it. And the question at this point in the core of our being is, is God trustworthy can and will he protect me from what I fear most and I'm so afraid of now interestingly uh, the first seven verses of this chapter 41 speaking about all the unbelievers out there they are afraid to referred to as the coastlands and peoples not belonging to the Lord, and they're all fashioning idols, and they're absolutely confident that their idols will protect them. For verse 7, I think it says, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith who smooths with the hammer, strikes the anvil, saying of the soldiering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But the question we have as believers is, will we trust God when we are confronted with what we're afraid of and avoid the crippling effects ruling us? The second category I want to think about is the reasonableness of fearlessness. That it's reasonable to be fearless. And although a fearless man or woman is attractive to us we like fearless people um, but deep down we all kind of wonder if they're sort of foolish we make heroes of people but deep down we think what they're kind of a fool and it's my purpose in prayer that when you see uh, massive war clouds in your life and catastrophize the future. It's all going to be terrible. And uh, that you won't turn back into fear and blame. And that you would join me in considering living a brave, foolish, wild-hearted lifestyle. And embrace God's call to engage in the battle. To move forward to trust God, to not shrink back, to put on a smile, to live life to the full, to go for those things the Lord has put on your heart and not give way to fear. That what God begun in your life, began in your life, brought you to, at this point, 
that he is faithful, that you could raise your Ebenezer and say, thus far the Lord has led us, that you could look forward into your future and say, the Lord will provide, I don't know how, but we're going up this mountain. But dad, where's the sacrifice? Isaac, the Lord will provide. So it's reasonable, because faith is reasonable. But fear is so irrational. Fear is always irrational. People are embarrassed to say, I'm afraid. Because if they say why they're afraid, they know it's irrational. That it ought not to be the case. And they're kind of embarrassed by it. We wouldn't want anybody embarrassed by it, but we... we um, we would want them to encourage, to be encouraged to confess their fears and then to turn to Isaiah 41.10. So God commands two things, do not fear, and he says, do not anxiously look around you. And these two commands are never given without reasons. They're reasonable. And he gives five reasons in this little verse. One, I'm with you. Two, I'm your God. Three, I'll strengthen you. Four, I'll help you. Five, I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Five reasons in one little verse. In fact, there's more reasons then there are promises. So it seems to me that the old St. Patrick got it right. St. Patrick stays coming up. That's not why I have this quote here. It just fits with this promise. And he lived in Wales where I got my PhD. And he was stolen by some, some uh, bad dudes and taken as a slave and he escaped with livestock and the Lord uh, gave him a vision for the people of Ireland and went back to win them uh, to faith and he wrote to encourage himself to face his fears I bind him Unto myself today the power of God to hold and to lead, his eye to watch, his might to stay, his ear to listen to my need, his wisdom to teach, his hand to guide, his shield to ward, his word to give me speech, his heavenly host to be my guard against the demon snares of sin, the vice that gives temptation force, the natural lusts that war within, the hostile men that mar my course, or few or many or far or near, in every place and in all hours against the fierce hostility I bind to myself against these holy powers, Christ. Christ be with me. Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, 
Christ to win me, Christ to comfort me, Christ to restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in the hearts of all who love me, Christ in the mouth of a friend or a stranger. And Ireland was converted. So there's five reasons that tell us we can and must rest upon God's word and God himself for a fearless life. Contextually, we are given sights of who God is. He's in verse 1 of this chapter, the judge of all things. Verses 2 and 3, the sovereign ruler over all nations. Verse 4, he's self-existence. He, he, he just is. Everything that exists, exists because God exists. Nothing exists apart from him existing. If he didn't exist, we wouldn't exist. And 8 and 9, that he's the faithful lover, a covenant-keeping God. So, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. Look all around you anxiously. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The crippling effects of fear and the, that fearlessness is reasonable. This is just, the whole thing is that a lot of people live under sort of controlling manipulators. A lot of people are bullied. And they were complicit in some sort of agreement and relationship with that person, could be at work or family. And for them to be courageous means that they're going to have to face this bully. And this verse is for you. Fear isn't reasonable. Faith is reasonable. Rise up. Face that giant. Boldly love. Say no more. Do not be ruled by an angry individual or a bully. God is with you. So the third is just briefly the significance of Christ's birth in the incarnation. The crippling effects of fear wreak havoc on you and your loved ones. Your friends and children can see how you play the coward at times. And play the coward before those kind of people who always get their way through intimidation and emotional threats. Some of you kids at school, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
And we watch some of you adults sit like a little lamb when danger threatens. And we're hoping you would rise up and be like a lion. Anyone can see how quickly and suddenly you make up your identity as a mere grasshopper in the presence of an angry giant and a Goliath. And we're all weary of how you then become angry at us and put yourself down, start the blame game. So listen, all the reasons in the scripture haven't really transformed you until you see why Christ became a man. Why did he? Because, and why is this important that you be transformed by the incarnation? Because if we just tell people, fear not, stop it, you ought not to be so anxious. You stop looking around so anxiously around you and being dismayed. That won't change you. The command won't change you. The reason we're so fearful and so incredibly distorted about ourselves and whatever threatens us is that fear won't be ignored. It can't be wished away. And what we need in order to be saved, somehow if, if God himself would come down from heaven as a little baby surrounded by a dragon ready to devour him in order to rescue us from our fears. If somehow God would just become weak and tender and a baby and then live a perfect life on our behalf and be crucified on the cross and take all our sin and all our excuses on himself and rise from death itself from our greatest fear and empower us to be witnesses by the Holy Spirit and ascend to pray for us and be an advocate anytime we're in the worst of sins, says 1 John 1, 9, 1 John 2, 1, Jesus the advocate, the righteous when we sin, then, then you'll experience the power and significance of the incarnation through the Holy Spirit because then you realize he's beside you, he's over you, he's inside you, he's around you, he's underneath you, he is in you and you in him and there is no way in him, in the Father's hand, that the devil could ever harm you forever.
I'm not very organized. I don't know what page I'm on. I got to catch an airplane, and I don't want to. I was kidding when I said I'll be here three hours. Somebody, you know, came to our church, you know, and I went like this, and the little boy with his friend said, what does that mean? And the little boy who was used to me said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> I don't know. The significance of Christ's birth, that's what I see in Isaiah. The suffering servant would come. The Emmanuel, all those Isaiah promises of Christ. And Jesus says, I am with you. I am your God. I'll strengthen you, I'll help you, I'll uphold you. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set your people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee, right? Another allegory, allegorical story, Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. Despondency. His daughter was named Much Afraid too. John Bunyan in prison takes a leg from a chair and makes it into a flute and writes a book that's next to the Bible, the bestseller. A Puritan. And he writes how Mr. Despondency and his daughter, much afraid, um, said to their friends before death, Myself and my daughter, you know what we've been, how troublesomely we have behaved ourselves in your company. My will and my daughter's is that our despondency and our slavish fears be by no man ever received from the day of our departure forever. For I know that after my death, they will offer themselves to others. For to be plain with you, they are ghosts, the which we entertained when we first began to be Christian pilgrims and could never shake them off after. They'll walk about and seek some believer, some other pilgrim, but for our sakes, shut ye the door upon them, these evil spirits. And when the time was come for them to depart, Bunyan says, they came to the brink of the river of death, and the last words of Mr. Despondency were, farewell, Farewell night, welcome day. And his daughter went through the river singing, but no one could understand what she said. Well, there's a quote from, I don't know if Kentucky's in the South or not, you know. I never figured that out. I don't know why all my friends were Southerners. I, I don't know. 
but it is what it is. And um, but I read this from a book uh, about. Uh, well, forget the book because I don't want to distract you. But this I, last quote was the only thing I liked in the book. And it said, when you come to the end of life, and I don't know about you, like, I've been in 35 nations in missions. A lot of churches around here, just like where I am, and I figure, they don't need me here. And I got a PhD on Edwards. Why don't I just see what I could equip some laborers and do something? I never had to sign up. They just keep invitations come. Lithuania last fall, Sri Lanka in February, an MTW church plant there. It's so exciting. And uh, Prague in August. I gave notice to my elders a proposed plan for a successor, a guy discipled. I've been 30 years at my church. A year ago, they agreed, and then this week we let our congregation know. And I only know that I won't have a job a year from now. We're going to just go through it a whole year. But then I don't have a job. But you know what? It's kind of exciting to think that our calling's not at stake. God knows how long we'll live. And there's plenty of work to do. But I just think like that. I think, I, I remember, I don't know how much time I have. I promise I'll land a plane. But I was thinking about, one time, Alistair Begg, do you know him? He's a Scottish preacher. He did our wedding. And one time I was at a preacher's thing in, in Wheaton. And he preached on, so, so run in such a way as to win the prize. So run. And so then I did not want to be in Bloomington Normal. I'm telling you, it's prairie land. I wanted to quit every Monday and a whale would throw me up again. I'd stay 30 years. And this is like the first year. My last name's Smart. I actually live in the town of Normal. Uh, like, it's a scandal. And anyway, I was with Alistair in the parking lot, and his last words were to me, as I'm ready to quit again, run. Run. I drove home. I dissociate when I drive in Illinois. It's just cornfields, you know, it's like winter. I hope I stayed in the right lane. I don't know. I'm crying, and I made up my mind. I'm going to run. Are you all in? Are you all in on the gospel and going to the promised land? Trusting Christ. Anyway, this book ends with this quote. Our life's end in coming to heaven should not have the intention of merely preserving a healthy body. But rather, 
the picture should be of you skidding in down flat across home plate, thoroughly spent, totally worn, worn out, and shouting, wow, what a journey. Father, thank you so much for the dear people here. We come against the spirit of resignation and quitting and self-protection, self-preservation, and just selfish safety. And we pray that we would rise up, lean into the future, and fear not, and not be dismayed for the reasonableness of faith, that you are our God, you'll strengthen and help, uphold us with your righteous right hand. If there's anyone here that has not trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they would see how reasonable it is and how unreasonable it is to trust in anyone else but you who would actually come down from heaven and become a little baby, grow to be a man living perfect life without sin, die the death that we deserve in order to rise from the dead, bury our sins, come back again to fetch us in all our fearfulness, take us across the river of death and into glory with trumpets and glad welcomes and shouts of joy. We pray that we would see the reasonableness of that. In Jesus' name, amen.